are going to be alternating each week. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, Lloyd and I were talking, and he asked me if uh, he wanted me to, uh, or for him to send to me, sorry, just organizing something here, if he wanted uh, me to have him send uh, what he was going to be speaking on these next two weeks. And so he sent his... Uh, schedule. And if you know Lloyd, he's very organized. Uh, And I discovered that next week and then the fourth week of March, he's doing week two and week four of Lent. And he just kind of said in the email, you know, if if you want to work something in, I want to make sure you're not going to be covering the same topics. I wish I started to panic a little because I, I never came from a tradition where we formally followed any tradition of Lent uh, as far as what we did on a Sunday. Uh, There's been little hints of it in the last uh, number of years here, Uh, but I've never preached through Lent. In fact, I wasn't really even quite sure what Lent was, and, and, uh, and so we started talking about it at home a bit, and I heard uh, Allison, who works at the Mount, uh, so with the, within the, the Catholic Church, uh, and Jack were talking about the fact that the day just before Lent begins, they eat pancakes. And so I thought, well, maybe this is something worth further investigating because that's a good way to start anything with, with a pancake dinner. Uh, and so I started researching Lent and, and I wrote a whole bunch of stuff and copied a bunch of things and, and was quite happy to discover that, uh, and let me just, it's, it's an early church practice uh, meant to prepare followers of Jesus for celebrating Easter. And, and so when Lloyd sent me this, it all of a sudden dawned on me, oh yeah, like we're, we're only weeks away from, from Palm Sunday and Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday. Uh, and uh, so Lent, uh, again, the comfort that I got in studying it is, is something that's not you know, strictly followed and observed in, in, in a bunch of different churches, uh, and some follow it really traditionally, and, and others just kind of pick on some of the themes that are often associated with Lent. And so that was attractive to me, that perhaps we could pick up on, on some of the themes of Lent, uh, and uh, that I would be able to come across a passage that would speak to that, while Lloyd is probably going to be a, a lot more... Um, uh, structured as far as his following of Lent. Uh, and it says that the good news about Lent is that Christians throughout history have practiced Lent differently. This means there's no right way to lean into Lent. Uh, rather than bogging down in rigid approaches to Lent, it may be more valuable to consider the major themes and practices that Lent uh, can leverage. And some of those uh, themes are following Jesus, repentance, uh, the horror of sin, Salvation by grace, forgiveness, substitution. Uh, and I thought, you know, I think I can find a passage that would speak to some of those themes that, that would truly prepare our hearts as we, we move into the Easter weekend. And, and so I started thinking about a passage that I could look at this week and then two weeks from now that might fit that. But what's really been burdening me as well over this last uh, week or so is how, how do we come here on Sunday and look at God's Word and not at least be somewhat influenced by and speak into what's taking place in Ukraine uh, right now and what 
uh, word of truth that there can be. I know we're far removed from it, but we see the news every day and, and we know people who are living much closer who, or who have loved ones who are living uh, right there where all the action uh, is taking place. And so that has unsettled me a bit. And uh, specifically Thursday night, uh, I came home from the Pete's game and f- looked at Fox News to catch up on what was going on. Uh, and that right around then was when the nuclear plant was on fire and no one really knew how uh, tragic it was going to be. But what I was reading was that it could be catastrophic uh, in, in, to an extent that the world has never uh, experienced. And so I went to bed quite unsettled, feeling like I did when COVID first hit. Like feeling this, this fear that I know I shouldn't have uh, but just this fear uh, settling in. And I went to bed that night with that fear, and I woke up in the morning relieved to discover that the fires uh, had not caused the nuclear blocks to explode. Um, but I sat downstairs in my office and opened up uh, my computer to a devotion that was sitting on my screen, which pointed to me, me to one of the passages of Scripture. This is one of my favorite that I often turn p- other people to when they're in a time of conflict, of trouble, when they don't understand what's going on, where they're questioning God uh, and uh, fearing fearful. And, uh, and it, this passage just reminds us that God's in control, he hasn't lost control, that nothing catches him by surprise, and that no matter how sin works its way out through this world, that that God has the world in his hand, and and that hope and peace and and true joy is found in him through eternity. Uh, And and the passage that uh, my attention was turned to is in Habakkuk, where Habakkuk is questioning God, like, God, what are you doing? Why are the things happening uh, like they are? And Habakkuk ends his uh, prophecy writing, though the fig tree doesn't bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And Habakkuk could write that when the context of what he was writing in wouldn't have necessarily, humanly speaking, led him to write those words, but because he could put his trust in an almighty God, he could say those words. Uh, and and so, so those were the words to me on Friday, and I thought somehow the, a passage that I choose to look at today and, and two weeks from now needs to somehow reflect that theme uh, as well. And so, so I came across a passage uh, in First John uh, chapter 2 and, and chapter 3, and if you've got your Bible, and, and, and welcome to those of you at home watching, uh, turn in your Bible to 1 John uh, chapter 2, and, and we're going to be looking uh, near the end of uh, chapter 2, verse 28, and, and into uh, chapter 3 a little bit today, and, and then we'll c- continue it in a couple of weeks from now. And, and I wanted to begin looking at this passage by, by asking a question like I so often like to do. And, and the, the question that I would ask you is, have you ever considered what it would be like to be the child of someone great? 
I mean, humanly speaking, great. Great in riches, great in power, great in status. Yeah. To be honest, I thought of this question as I was driving through Peterborough this week. Uh, and I saw the gas prices up around $1.74 or 75 whatever it was. And here I'm driving my pickup truck that is a pig on gas. And I'm going, oh my goodness, like, what am I going to do? Like this, this is getting too expensive to, uh, to even drive from home into Peterborough on a regular basis, let alone to be going into Toronto. And, and how do people do it? And how, do, how, how are people going to do it? And it hit me. I wonder what it must be like to be from a family that's rich. It's $2 a liter, $3 a liter. It doesn't matter. I just put it on dad's credit card and the, the vehicle's full. What would it be like to be a child of someone who's great in riches or status and power? And, you know, I, I, I knew, I could think of two individuals that come to mind, both of them that came from pretty humble uh, beginnings, uh, very low middle class uh, upbringing, uh, one specifically from a, a single parent home, uh, and both of them married into wealth and, and, and status and, and power. And if you were to meet them now, you, you'd find it hard to believe the beginnings from which they came from. But through marriage, they became the child uh, of a family that was great in, in status and power uh, and in wealth. It, I used to get a little bit of a taste of that. My dad was one of the top executives for the company that he worked for. And every um, year they did a conference at the Royal York Hotel. It was the biggest conference that the Royal York Hotel held yearly. And my dad was the key point person between his company and the hotel. And uh, for the last number of years uh, that the conference was held, and my dad was involved in the company, and I was in high school and university, I worked the week leading into the conference and then worked through the conference at the Royal York Hotel. And, and that gave me a pass that allowed me to get into all uh, of the inner workings of the Royal York Hotel. And, it's, and you see movies of these old hotels and, and all the... the the, the places that a, a tourist or a traveler wouldn't typically see, well, the Royal York Hotel is like that. And I would get to be uh, walking through all the inner halls and the lower basements. And, and I'd meet staff and they'd see my card saying that uh, I represented the IAPA uh, and that uh, I was Brent Mackey. And so often people say, are you Mr. Mackey's son? And I go, yeah, that's my dad. And it was like I was royalty. I only lasted for like a week every year. Uh, and it was only within the Royal York Hotel that I got treated that way. But it was kind of cool, especially when you're just a teenager, to be the child of, at least in the Royal York Hotel employee's eyes, someone who is great. And uh, yeah, as you think of First John, this passage that I look at, the writer is John. Uh, and he's writing later in his years, and, and there's so much John could share in his writing. He had so many experiences. Uh, he was one of the closest friends, disciples of Jesus. He's the beloved one. He, he listened and, and witnessed the profound teaching and the miracles of Jesus. He, he had first eye, first-hand account of the transfiguration of Jesus uh, in all of his glory. Uh, he, he saw the, the death and, and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Uh, he, he witnessed 
the opposition to to Jesus and and the followers of Jesus. He experienced um, the ridicule and the persecution and the suffering that went along with it. He he experienced, and that's what he writes in in 1 John. He's writing to a bunch of Christians who are experiencing division and disunity and, and, and opposition. And there's so much that John could write and share with us. But where we find ourselves in this letter in the passage I want to look at. It's like John all of a sudden stops his teaching to share a truth that's captured his heart. As if someone has said to him, hey John, you've got a wealth of experience. As you look back and all that you've done and all that you've heard and all that you've seen, what's that one thing that stands out? What's that one truth that, that, that motivates you and gives you great hope despite what's going on right now? And without missing a beat, John says in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we can be called children of God. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a child of someone great? If you are a follower of Jesus, have you ever taken the time to contemplate the privileged position you have as being a member of the family of God? Have you considered the extent to which God had to go to make this a reality? This morning and, and two weeks from now, as, as I do my part in trying to prepare our hearts uh, for the Easter uh, season, I want to stress this great love that God has for us and how he demonstrated it to such an extent that he was able to make us his sons and daughters. Because I truly believe that, that to the extent that God allows us to see his great love for us and, and allows us to, to take it in and to allow it to capture our heart, we will be changed people. And so this morning, I just want to look at a simple question. And I, I looked at the schedule that Daniel handed me this morning, and, and he says I have three minutes to do my sermon. So it's good that I just have one simple question that I'm going to look at. And I want to look at the question, what does it mean to be a child of God? And then two weeks from now, we're going to, we're going to look at most of the verses in chapter uh, three of the text I'm going to read here in a second. And I just want to look at the, the question, if that is our reality, that we are children of God, and, and we're going to see today what that means, then how should that change the way we live our life? And so again, the passage is uh, 1 John chapter uh, 2. I'm going to start at verse 28, and we're going to read down to 3, verse 10. And John writes, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And so this morning, i just really just going to be looking at, at verses 1 and a little bit of verses 2 of chapter 3. And just to answer that question, what does it mean to be a child of God? And, and some of those verses that I've just read and you're scratching your head over, we're going to contemplate those uh, a couple of weeks from now. But what does it mean to be a child of God? And, and first, I think the question we need to answer is, to what extent did God actually go to make us his children? Just before Allison and I were married, uh, I think it was months probably before we got married, um, Allison, who many of you know was adopted, uh, found her biological mother. Uh, and sometime after our wedding, we had an opportunity to actually meet Ruby in person. Uh, and uh, I can remember a time when Ruby had come uh, with her mother uh, and was at our house, and Allison's dad and his wife uh, were there. And, and Ruby and, and Allison's dad, Don, were sharing stories uh, about what Ruby had done to, to, to make sure that, that Allison would have uh, an upbringing better than she could ever provide for her. And, and, and so putting up Allison for adoption when she was just a young, uh, unwed teenager uh, living in Newfoundland on her own. Uh, and, um, and Dawn shared some of the details and, and the efforts that they went through in this adoption process. Uh, and, and it involved sacrifice on both parts. It involved great effort. And, and we've all heard these great stories uh, of what has uh, ended in the adoption of a child into uh, a family and the sacrifices and efforts that have been made. But all those great stories pale in comparison to the extent that God went to to make us uh, his children Years ago, I uh, photocopied, and literally it's a photocopy, a story uh, by an author named Jay Carty, and it was in in a magazine called Vision Magazine, which uh, I don't think has been around for quite some time. Uh, I just want to read part of the story to you, uh, and uh, and, and we'll continue uh, our message, uh, allowing this to flavor some of the things that I want to talk about. It's called The Slave Auction. And I realized how long ago I photocopied this because the type is so small that it's a lot harder to read this time. It was a low-ceilinged room. Visualize it in your mind. Small cut-out windows in the stone wall sent shafts of light reflecting off the suit from oily lamps. The slaves were tethered over there with leather thongs. 
The auction block was in the middle, and the auctioneer stood beside it. The men were seated around the auction block. It was slave trading day. They had just auctioned off a 46-year-old man. Didn't bring much. The 46-year-olds weren't worth much in those days. But when they brought in a 17-year-old girl, high cheekbones, lovely, dignified, she had to shuffle up, thonged at the wrists and the ankles with a thong between that forced her to bend over as she walked. But she stared over the heads of the slave buyers. The men sat up. They could tell the bidding was going to be brisk. Squint eyes and the prince, two people you need to know about. That man on the left, squint eyes, was a vicious, cruel taskmaster. Loved to ravage his slaves, torture them, slowly dismember them, kill them slowly. That was his great pleasure. His was the worst household you could possibly be put into. The man on the right was a benevolent Roman prince. Loved his slaves, treated them like children, adored them. The best household. All the other men were somewhere between. All the slaves for sale knew the man on the right was the best. And on the left was the worst. Grapevine information travels fast. The bidding started briskly. She stood emotionless until the left one bid, and she couldn't contain it. The corner of her mouth and her neck gave her away. It was one of those, oh no, I hope he's not interested in me kind of looks. The bidding continued until squint eyes bid again, and a twitch revealed her, oh no, deep inside. Then the man on the right bid, and she turned and looked a hopeful glance and said, oh please. Squint eyes bid, hope was dashed. Somebody else bid. The left one again bid. They stopped. Then it started again. The left one raised it, and the right man bid again. She was being torn now by sobbing tears and emotion. She couldn't contain it. She was only 17. Finally, squint eyes bid, and the prince didn't. The ravager of slaves had placed the highest bid. The auctioneer raised the gavel and said, Going, going. And as the hammer started to downswing, if you could have seen her face right then and studied it carefully, you would have, been, you would have seen total despondent resignation. The girl gave up. All hope gone. Dashed as the hammer started down. But just before it hit, the man on the right bid one more time. Only the amount he bid was greater than the net worth of the greater, sorry, was greater than the net worth of the bad guy. If squint eyes could have liquidated all of his holdings, his land, his slaves, his herds, his possessions, and turned them into instant cash, if he could have done that, he would not have amassed enough money to overpower that bid. In other words, the prince made two statements. One, you're out of your league. Two, the auction's over. When he realized that, squint eyes slammed his books closed, stormed out of the room and shut the door with a resounding bang. Everybody sat stunned. No one had ever paid a price like that for a slave. The prince got up, took off his cloak and covered the girl's nakedness. He took out his dagger and cut the thong, not just in between, but he took it off each wrist and each ankle so there would be no binding on her at all. He sheltered her under his arm and said, Auctioneer, prepare a declaration of freedom. Today, this girl is free. The men around said, You paid that price and now you turn her loose? You're an idiot. Without answering them, the benefactor continued, Oh, in addition to that, since I'm a Roman prince, she shall have the honor of being a Roman princess. Ah, yes, there's one more thing. 
Right in that, she will have full heir of a portion of my inheritance. The auctioneer wrote it all down, then melted the wax, and the prince put his signet ring in it. It became law in front of those witnesses. You know, if we were there witnessing this event, uh, I think many of us would have asked, what kind of businessman is that? that would show such generosity and kindness to a lowly slave girl. And, and if we had been that slave girl at that auction, the question we would have been asking is, what kind of prince is this? Who is so kind and so compassionate and showing it towards me, such a, a lowly person. The reason Jay Cardi wrote this uh, story was to help us just to get a, a mental picture of the kindness and the compassion and the mercy, let's call it the love that God pours out on us when we were in slavery to sin uh, and its penalty. And to set us free from sin and to make us fit to stand before a holy and just God it cost God a whole lot more than just a massive sum of money. Bible tells us, and Daniel read it for us already, that it cost God the Father the, the life of his son. In Romans 5, God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And just as that, that slave girl would sit there helpless to be able to help herself, so too were we helpless to help ourselves. And the intention of that story that he writes is, is so that just like those who would have witnessed that slave auction take place would have asked the questions, we're left asking the question as well, what kind of love is that? That would go to the extent to free us from the slavery of sin to give us eternal life, to forgive us of our sin, to make us new, and to make us sons and daughters. And when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, that's, that's the very question that John wants us to ask. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has done something so generous, so unexpected, so bizarre, and it happens, and you just look what was that? And, and that's what John does here. First of all, John says, see, and he says, I, I want your attention. I'm stopping my teaching here for a moment, and I want to capture your attention, because what I'm going to tell you here is captured my heart. It's captured my attendant, my attention. This is what stands out to me from everything in my past. And he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. In the original language, what great love literally means, what kind of love is that? What was that? There has never been a demonstration. There's never been a kind of love ever like this seen before. John said, this, this is an out of this world kind of love that God has lavished on you and I that we can call ourselves children of God. And we miss that when we read the text. And I think sometimes we miss that when we live our life as a Christian. 
Because I don't know about you, but I got to confess that there are a lot of times I'm, I'm very apathetic and very unmoved by this lavish love that God has poured on me to the extent that I have become his child. As I said, just like that slave girl realized there was nothing, nothing she could do other than just sit and be amazed at the outworking of the, of the kindness and compassion of this prince. The Bible makes it very clear there's nothing that we can do to earn or to deserve this outpouring of love. But the beautiful thing is, is God doesn't expect that, that we work or, or we, we do a certain bunch of things so that we, we deserve or have attained the outpouring of his love. All, all, all that God wants us to do is, is to receive his love. Which is why it's so sad that there are so many people, so many people who, who call themselves followers of Jesus and they're so tired. They're so worn out doing things. Believing that if they, they can just accomplish all these things, then they will be deserving, that they will have attained, that they will be able to, to, to settle in the love of God. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches that the, the, the extent of God's love poured out on us takes us from, from being spiritually dead to eternally alive. And he makes us his children. The prince didn't have to free the slave. He could have just paid his price and put her to work. He didn't have to free her. He didn't have to make her a princess. He he didn't have to make her an heir. And the same is true for us. God didn't have to save us. He would have been perfectly right and just if he left us in our sin. But God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And to the extent that God opens our eyes to this great love that he has for us, to that extent, we will be changed people. So that's the extent that God love, God's love has gone to, to make us his children. But I ask the question, what does it mean to be a child of God? And, and maybe that sounds like a pretty simple question. But I think it's kind of a confusing question, especially in, in, in a politically correct world that, that preaches tolerance and inclusion. Because you will hear it said that, well, everyone is a child of God. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. Everyone is a creation of God, God loves the whole world. But the Bible is very clear. 
And as we get through the verses in, in chapter 3, two weeks from now, we'll see. It is those who have put their trust in the person and work of Jesus who truly are children of God, who are grafted in to God's family. And we could go on that for a long time, and I'm not going to right now. But if you need verses to, to back that up, I'll, I'll gladly give those verses to you. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that you've put your, your trust and your confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how you are adopted into the family of God. But what does it mean to be a child of God? That's a hard concept to get our, our head around. What's it look like? Maybe that's a better question. And someone has said that, it, that it's helpful to understand what it looks like to be a child of God by, by thinking about what it looks like, what it means to be a child of a loving parent. And maybe if you can think of that, that would help you to understand what it must be like to be a child of a loving God. So what is it like to be a child of a loving parent? Well, well, a few things come to mind. One is that you are loved more deeply than you can ever imagine. Yeah, it, it, it was only when we had our first child, Lauren, that I finally could appreciate the love that my parents must have had for me. Because when I held Lauren, well, shortly after I held Lauren, my, they, they handed me Lauren and Allison was being sewn up after a c-section and no one else was in the room and i walked back to the room with lauren thinking she was like a china doll but when i got comfortable and i held her and snuggled her i realized how can you love anything more deeply than the love a parent can have for their for their child uh like we would we would say things like we love her so much it hurt and in our family we say we love you so much we want to squish you and I didn't think I could love anything more deeper than, than the love I had for Lauren. And then along came Natalie. And it didn't take any of the love I had for Lauren away. But I loved Natalie just as deeply. Like I loved her more than I could ever imagine. And, and I realized my love for her wasn't just that ooey gooey gushy I want to squish you love. But, but I loved her in a way that, that I wanted to protect her. And, and I wanted to protect all my children. I wanted them to have the things that they, they needed. I had that kind of love for them. But, but it went even further. I had, a, I had a, a patient, a long-suffering. I had a forgiving love for my children. And, and, and often we have told our kids over the years, that, you know, you're going to hear things or you're going to see things or you're going to be asked by your friends to do certain things. Remember who truly loves you. And when things go all backwards, who's still going to be there, who's still going to love you, who's still going to forgive you. you know, as I consider that and the love that my parents had for me, I'm glad that they had a resilient love for me because I gave them lots of opportunity to reconsider. But, but, but through all the stupid things I did, they forgave me. And yeah, there was consequences. And, and, and there were some tough times where I probably drove them crazy, but they loved me. And there's one thing that despite whatever was going on, I was always confident that my parents loved me and nothing would take that away. And that's what it's like if you're a child of God. In Ephesians 2, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3, uh, verses 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So what does it mean to be a child of, uh, of a loving parent, to be a child of God? It means that you are loved more deeply than you can ever imagine. But it also means that, that, that you are given the essentials for living. And, and when I think of the essentials that I, as a father, per, want to, to make available to my kids, I think of provision. That, that I supply the, what they need so that they can succeed. Uh, and security. It's a great feeling as a father to know that when my kids find themselves in a tough time, that they find their comfort and security in the arms of their father. Lauren and Natalie especially will often joke if I say to them, I said, like, if, if this happens, what are you going to do? I can just hear Lauren's voice. I call my dad. And we have a father, God the Father, like that. I think of Psalm 121. I lift my, up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He'll not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. And I can't help but think that the comfort those kind of words would bring to those brothers and sisters of ours living in the Ukraine, experiencing what they're experiencing, not knowing what tomorrow will hold, but that they can find security in a God who provides for all their needs in a God who has them uh, under his, in his loving embrace. Uh, loving parents provide for us an inheritance. And I was thinking this morning of that song that we used to sing uh, at Sunday school. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. And I can't remember the rest of the words except where it says that, that, that they're mine too. Uh, that, that we're joint heirs with Jesus. I don't even get what that all means. But if you are a child of God, you have been made joint heirs with Jesus. What's it mean to be a, a child of God? What does it mean to be a child uh, of loving parents? It means that you're a chip off the old block. That, that loving parents leave an imprint in their, their children's eyes. I, I reminded you of that last week when I, I said of the song we sang. I can, I can still hear my dad singing those words. It's been years since I've, I've heard him sing. I can hear his voice. I, can, I catch myself saying things. I'm, my goodness, is my mom or my dad in the room? You know, I, there, there's personality traits that, that we want to emulate of, of parents that, that, that we consider to be loving parents. And the Bible tells us that God whispers into our conscience that, that he implants his character traits right into us. We call them the fruits of the Spirit. What's it mean to be the child of God? It means that we become like him. We go on and on and on talking about those things. But one last thing, and it's actually a thing that even the most loving of parents can't guarantee, but God can. And that's this, what tomorrow holds. I was reminded of that yesterday. I was looking at a picture of a father in the Ukraine bending over a stretcher that was covered with a blood-soaked blanket. And under that blanket was his dead son. That father couldn't guarantee what tomorrow held for his son. 
but God can. And if you are a child of God, that John tells us here, the Bible tells us over and over again, God has a wonderful future for us. That Jesus has, has left, he has departed, he's gone to prepare a place for us and he's coming back and he's going to take us. And it says that when we see him, what we're going to be will be fully revealed. And I don't know what that all means either. We're going to look at that two weeks from now, but I, I can't explain that fully what it means. But, but what John says is that when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. And he's prepared a place for us. As Keith Green used to say, it took him six days to, to, to create the earth and he's been gone this long preparing a place for it. It's going to be pretty amazing. What does it mean to be a child of God? You have a future hope. And to the extent that God allows us to see and to experience and to let this truth of his great love capture our heart, to that extent will be changed people. Daniel, I've probably gone over time, way past three minutes, I apologize.